episode 281. Gray Rose, we're 19 episodes away from our 300th episode. And our match of the week this week, uh, you know, Barry, been written, discussed many different areas. We recently lost a Jerry Jarrett, legendary promoter uh, in Mempho, Tennessee, and then that surrounding areas. So this week, our match of the week is Jerry the King Lawler taking on Jerry Jarrett, 1979. I believe it's from Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, so we're going to do a little discussion of that. Barry Rose, what's going on? Are you ready to talk a little Jerry Jarrett? Yeah, but I, I got to tell you, I had a scary moment last night, and uh, I did not sleep. Not another toilet-related incident, I'm hoping. No, no, I won't bore. This is uh, this is a an Ozzy-related incident. So, Jeff, I know that you can relate, but we took Ozzy for a nice walk yesterday. It was about a three-mile walk. I try to take him a few times a week. He, got, he gets a little belly on him, so I try to make, you know, he's nine and a half. I want him to be active, and we took this walk. Everything was great. And it came time for dinner. I guess it's about 5.30. And I'm like, come on, Oz. And Ozzy starts to come in, and he can't walk on his front right paw. He's limping, and he basically can't even come in. Like, he, he can't even, you know, he he's unable to even make it 20 feet even into the kitchen. So, obviously, you know, understanding my love for Ozzy, as, as you have love for, for your dog, Snap, I was just, you know, freaked out, right? Like, what's going on? How come he didn't limp all the way home? What's going on, right? It, it completely freaked out. So all night long, I was checking on him. I was uh, overindulging. I must have fed him 85,000 treats, you know, telling him how much I loved him. And I didn't sleep. And a lot of it was I was really concerned. I was, you know, shit, this is Ozzy is literally my right side of my body. He's my right arm on so many different ways. So I didn't sleep, got up this morning. He was still on the couch. He had not gotten off the couch all night. And I was like, Oz, let's go eat. And Ozzy gets off the couch and saunters in like the cock of the walk to come eat his breakfast. No limp, no anything. I have no explanation for what happened. I'm thrilled and obviously extremely happy that he's good. Did anything you've owned several dogs too, Jeff, or I should say several dogs have owned you, right? But have you ever seen something like that where there's a bad limp and then the next day completely gone? First of all, let's talk about Ozzy uh, doing the weezerk uh, on his dad. Uh, you know, obviously he was uh, selling the leg <laughs> to get himself some treats. Uh, Smart. You know, he's like, yeah, I'm just going to leave. Oh, my paw, Dad. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, then uh, the treats start coming. And he's like, well, this is nice. I'm just going to work this. Dad, help me to the couch. I love uh, Yeah, it. so uh, I've had dogs that have done uh, the working of the uh, injuries or at least, uh, you know, the next day when you're sitting there thinking I'm going to have to take them to the vet because, yes. you know, they've got a limp going. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, uh, the damn thing uh you know, starts working fine. And especially since you said that he was, he was out on his walk and nothing, you know, it wasn't like he did something where, you know, there was a stumble or, uh, that he uh, stepped on something. Uh, yeah, very, no, no, but it's definitely happened to, uh, to my uh, dogs in the past. So glad to hear that the Oz man, uh, is feeling better though. So, uh, besides all that, we, uh, hey, we're going to have an interview with Gary Michael Capetta oh. on today's show. Yes. Uh, coming up, uh, I don't know, Barry, uh, uh if uh, you may have mentioned this, but, uh, Gary Michael Capetta coming to the beautiful Lutz, Florida in the near future, is he not? He is very, very excited. Gary, uh, I should say too, Gary reached out the day after we recorded the segment, said, I want to thank you and your partners so much. Had a great time. I would love to come back on if you ever need me. 
and then said he's looking forward to the Fan Fest. And why was he looking forward to the Fan Fest, Jeff, besides getting to meet you in person? Do you know well, that? you know, that's uh, any person's <laughs> dream. I'm it glad was. you, uh, you know, coached it that way. Uh, uh, is it, uh, getting to meet our, uh, you know, Linda and Kim? It's, it's, so it had nothing to do with that. He said, he, he basically told me, uh, that he is excited because our concept is different, that it's not the traditional cattle call. He's done a lot of these big events and here he gets to have a, a small intimate event, you know, where he can basically talk to everybody and, and, and just have a good, a relaxed time. So, uh, we were very happy to have Gary on with us for sure. Yeah. It's, uh, something we're all looking forward to now. Let's talk match of the week. You know, as I mentioned, uh, match of the week, we, we were want to honor Jerry Jarrett, such a profound loss, uh, you know, such a, you know, if you're doing a Mount Rushmore of Memphis, uh, wrestling, I, I think Jerry, uh, Jarrett would have to be on there. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you know, the, the interesting thing is I was reading Meltzer's, uh, obit recently. And, uh, you know, I, I know Dave has people that are not fans of his. But one thing that I don't think anyone could dispute is when it comes time for an obituary, Dave's obituaries are must-reads. And, you know, just because there's so, so much information and stuff that maybe you don't know about. And, you know, one of the things as I read it that really kind of kind of threw me for a loop there is the knowledge that uh, because Jerry always had that eye looking down the road to possibly promote his run as their lead babyface in Memphis, I say lead babyface, as one of the lead babyfaces, maybe that's a better way to put it, was only from 1970 to 1976, you know, uh, as part of a tag team with, with Tojo Yamamoto, uh, and they had Jackie Fargo in the mix there too. And that, then all the, uh, the issues with Nick Goulas, uh, happened where there was a split and all that is part of Dave's obituary piece. But, you know, did you realize that was that it was really a six or seven year run for Jarrett? Yeah, and even then, I I don't think he was. Uh, I don't even though he was the lead baby face. I think the supporting cast was pretty huge around him. Sure, well. yeah. So it wasn't like look, Jerry. Jerry never looked like the most athletic guy. He kind of built like I am, like 175 pounds, slight belly, not spending a lot of time in the gym, but. Here's a guy, Jeff, that was so intelligent that even at that stage, he understood how to get over with the crowd. And, you know, you can there's a lot of arguments, especially now, you know, and I know that Meltzer has been in the middle of this controversy about Memphis being viewed Tennessee wrestling in general being viewed as like garbage wrestling by a lot of other people. I almost dispute it in the sense that maybe it's not the wrestling that you grew up with, but it's very hard to argue with the success because when you look at this match and you look at the enthusiasm of the people at ringside, and look, this is Jerry Jarrett, three years from competing, right? This is 79. You said he was out by 76. He was not a full-time wrestler. He was the guy involved in a promotional war with Nick Goulas. At this stage, I think he had already kind of vanquished Goulas at this stage. And this was not a guy that spent any time in the gym, but here was a guy that could get in the ring, throw maybe one of the most realistic punches you'll ever see. And in working with Lawler, who's the top heel in the, in the, the promotion and really maybe one of the top heels in the country at this stage, underrated. You got two guys that knew what the audience wanted to see. And again, 
you know, even with Tojo, like you look at Tojo and I don't think, I don't think history is kind to Tojo in a nice way to put it, but Tojo was like five, four, five, five, didn't, you know, nothing he did looked realistic to any degree. I, I don't, no matter what it was, the weak chops, the punches, none of it looked like it was having any sort of impact, but Tojo was still putting asses in the seats and, and it really is understanding what the people want to see and what the fans want to see. And Jeff, you and I were lucky enough to be able to meet Jerry Jarrett when he was at our fan fest, which was headlined by the Rock and Roll Express, which is kind of ironic, right? And the fact that he gave them their start also. And Jerry Jarrett, I, I had met him briefly when I was a, a young Mark as opposed to an older Mark in, uh, in 1979. I was in Memphis for that WFIA convention. I think it was a handshake and a photo op. It was nothing, you know, but I really never had a conversation with him until we did the cup of coffee event at our fan fest. And he was a little slow out of the gate. There was uh, some political stuff that he was touching on. And then once he started, my God, he turned into like the most fantastic guest. What a memory, clear headed. Say what you want about the Memphis guys, but I've always heard this about Lawler, no drugs, no alcohol. And when you listen to Jerry Jarrett, I mean, he's, he's so clear in everything he was telling us. And I got to spend 10 to 15 minutes with him as the event was progressing. I went over to his table. I got a copy of his book. I got it signed, which I will now treasure uh, and will never get rid of that item. And we talked and he had this really unique ability, Jeff, of putting you at ease with his intelligence and his friendship. And within that 10 to 15 minute conversation, I walked away feeling like I had made a friend the rest of my life. He was just warm, affable, genuine. He gave off these genuine vibes that you just don't always get. And we immediately started talking. I'm like, Jerry, will you come back? Can we do this again? He said, I would love to. I had a great time. And that's the beauty. And to give credit where credit is due, the people that attend our fan fest, they they get it. They absolutely get it. You know, we you go to so many fan fests and people can be out of control. Uh, and not not saying we don't have that. They usually <laughs> exactly <laughs> Neely J. That usually comes a little bit later at night. But you know, during the event, people are respectful. They're engaging. It's really it, it it's designed to be that way. But it makes the talent feel great. So he was great. I, I can't say no, enough good about Jerry Jarrett. This match, though, it's genius. You've got the lead heel. You've got his manager, Jimmy Hart, who might have been the best manager in the world at this stage. He was just at a different level. And, and hold on. Sure. I don't mean to interrupt you. You know, as part of the obituary, uh, Dave was sort of giving another you know look at the history of Memphis. And he was talking about Jimmy Hart, and he mentioned uh, the genius of uh, Jimmy Hart and how Jimmy Hart got over. And he mentioned that very same thing. He said, you know, uh, when he was when he started out, that you know he basically was Lawler's silent partner leading to the ring before they did, you know, the whole thing where Lawler had broken his leg in a softball game or something right. like that. And then, of course. Hart did the famous interview where he said, you know, what do you do when a, when a horse breaks his leg? You shoot him and get, you know, move, move on next. And, uh, that's what Hart did. 
to establish himself as the lead manager. And one of the things that Dave said uh, to agree with you is that there was a time when Jimmy Hart might have been the most effective manager working in professional wrestling. And think about that. That's at a time when Bobby Heenan was at his zenith. And to think that Jimmy Hart wrestling in little old Memphis, Tennessee, was doing a better job as a manager than Bobby Heenan, than, you know, guys like Lord Al Hayes, Oliver Humperdinck, Lou Albano, and all those guys. That's how effective, and I'm not shitting on any of those guys. They're all great, but that's how effective Hart was in his role and the role that not only Lawler, but Jarrett created for him. I interrupted. Please continue. And, and that's, it's such a great point too. And, and much like I'll use Paul Jones as an example, who I, I think was maybe one of the worst managers, but I say that with the caveat, Paul Jones was a tremendous professional wrestler, especially going back in the 1970s. The problem is most people seem to remember Paul Jones from that, that mid 1980s stint. You know, it was horrible. Jimmy Hart was not a great manager in the WWF because he had handcuffs on, right? The guy was shackled. This is Jimmy Hart with a free reign. Jimmy Hart could do it all. I mean, his talking, but it, his his wrestling. I, this is the greatest day of my life, Lance Russell. <laughs> I Every got interview that. started off with this is the greatest day of my life, Lance Russell. Yep, I, yep <laughs> it was. But Jimmy Hart's wrestling IQ, and that's another thing. The Memphis guys, the wrestling IQ of Memphis guys, Jimmy Hart, Jerry Jarrett, Jerry Lawler, etc. They got it. They understood the business. They understood what would work. They understood how you could sell tickets. And I'll always be, uh, you know, I'll always hold that in the highest of regards. So this is a fun match. This is not a great match by any means. This is not a, uh, I don't think there's really any holds. There's a couple of maneuvers. There's a two pile drivers. The punch is thrown in here. And Jeff, I will toss this question over to you. Has there ever been a territory other than Memphis where the punches being thrown are so realistic looking that you're even questioning it yourself? And I, I bring that up because, again, Jerry Jarrett's three years removed from active competition. He's throwing a punch, and obviously Lawler is selling it. It just looks unbelievable. Lawler's punches we've talked about multiple times. But at the end of the match, Bill Dundee comes in and cleans house with his punches. Holy shit. Like, this is just every wrestling student that's out there that wants to be a professional wrestler needs to watch the punches that took place in Memphis, Jeff. Sean, we're talking to you, my man. Got to show this uh, the tape of this match to your uh, your students there and your promotion. You're right. This is not uh, any kind of, uh, you know, flare steamboat, uh, jumbo Masawa type of match. But one of the things that Memphis did brilliantly was they did more with less. They, you know, they, they weren't a great payoff territory, but you went there to learn. It was like going to college is what Jerry Jarrett was quoted as saying in the uh, obituary that Dave Meltzer wrote for him which, by the way, I encourage everyone to read because besides being an obituary for a legendary promoter, it, it basically talks about so many, uh, so much history of Memphis and uh, the angles they did and why they did them and how they were effective and what they did to make them effective. And, you know, the staggering thing is, you know, 
when I look at the observer, one of the things that Dave does every week is, you know, like with the WWE, here's what they have, uh, their, their share and their ratings and how many people were tuned in. And with the AEW, they do that. And, you know, maybe some other smaller promotions and to think about what the amount of uh, the share. And I, to be honest with you, I don't always understand the ratings there, but I know that there are times when and the heyday of Memphis wrestling within the Memphis area, the ratings that the the wrestling program achieved are just mind blowing. I mean, like you're talking about the kind of ratings that like the last episode of MASH and, you know, like uh Super Bowls, playoff games, NCAA Final Fours, those kind of ratings. They were getting every single freaking week in Memphis. And it was because guys like Lawler, guys like Jarrett, people like that. They understood the audience that they had and what appealed to them. And one of the things that Jerry Jarrett was quoted at in his obituary, Dave said, he always went by the theory of what is it that I think that I would want to watch if I was out there looking at the television set. And that was his first like really kind of, you know, idea that he had as a booker and a promoter. And, you know, he believed in the whole bookers having a shelf life of maybe six months and then you turn them over and and he and Lawler did this thing where they would switch out every six months and then sometimes they'd bring in you know Dundee to to run it for a few months to you know see if that worked just to kind of keep things fresh and keep things new and he was really just a a genius at doing that and of taking guys that really maybe weren't that talented but putting them in the ring with people that did have talent or knew their limitations and, uh, you know, could work around their limitations while at the same time highlighting things that they were, you know, could do that were positive, you know, and that was something that, that Jerry Lawler was always a genius at doing and uh, Jarrett as a promoter. So this match, you're right. It's not any kind of, you know, holy crap. Blah, but what you're watching is watch as as uh, Barry said the punches and the way that Lawler sells them watch how effective Jimmy Hart is at ringside stirring up the crowd watch out in the audience because the audience are losing their shit i mean they are just reacting to every single move and Jerry Lawler you know part of the storyline is he's got something hidden in his arm pad okay and they play that off for like 8 or 9 minutes of the match it's just Lawler keeping the foreign object away from the uh, the referee. And it's such a great story. You know, is the referee going to catch him? Is he gonna, oh, he almost caught him. And as you're watching the match and you're watching the fans at ringside, they're losing their mind. How did the guy miss that? And that was such a basic storyline back in the day that, you know, people would, would go there and you just work, you know, uh, good Lord, how long did the Sheik, uh, last doing the whole pencil in the trunks thing or Abdullah the butcher with the pencil in the trunk. And here Jerry Lawler had the foreign object hidden in his arm pad and he worked that for literally the entire match and it was just done brilliantly. And the way that he and Jerry Jarrett worked this match, you know, around some punches, some pile drivers and an object in the, in the arm pad is just brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Again, more from less. And that's what this match is. This is a 12 minute look at an absolutely epic, you know, promotion that did things brilliantly, that understood their audience completely. And it's a really fun look. And we'll post a link to it, uh, in our Facebook group, Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry. Uh, Barry, any other thoughts on this match? No, it, th- I do think this would, this should be required viewing. It's a great, it's a great look at what made 
a territory pop and what made a territory successful. And again, it, you're right about less is more because a guy like Tojo, right? Especially towards the end of his career, but even Jerry Jarrett and look, they put Jimmy Hart, Andy Kaufman. I mean, how genius was the whole Andy Kaufman angle? This is great stuff, Jeff. Well, and you know, I wonder when you talk about Tojo and how over Tojo was, Tojo in a lot of ways, tell me if you think this is a, a fair comparison. He was to the fans in Memphis, even though he had come on the scene before this character, they made him out to be like Mr. Miyagi. Yeah, you know? that's exactly what he was. Yeah. An older Asian guy who, because he knew karate or could, you know, he looked like he knew karate, people completely bought into like, wow, this guy's a badass, you know, even though he was five foot two or five foot three, you know. That friggin' deadly cry. Think about it. Think about the time that all this was going on. You were having all the Bruce Lee movies, you know, all, all the, you know, kung fu stuff on TV. And so, like, when someone threw a karate chop at this point in time, people were like, oh, shit, he's dead. And he threw a friggin' karate chop at him. So they completely bought into this character. And, you know, I'm not just saying that was all because of Jerry Jarrett. Tojo Yamamoto had, uh, had certainly had a hand in that also, and he was brilliant. By the way, we we're talking about old promoters that are still around besides Bill Watts. Uh, you know, uh, Lou pointing out, uh, Ron Fuller uh, is still out there with us. And, you know, uh, also Carlos Colon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but, you know, again, there, there's, you know, I, I thought about it. who's really left from the, the glory days of Memphis. I, I know I've heard, uh, I don't know if it's true or not. I've heard from people that Bill Dundee is having health issues. Yep. Uh, but like I know Dutch Mantel and, uh, and Steve Kern are still out there, Stan Lane, uh, you know, but, uh, the, you know, Barry all always says, if you get a chance to meet the heroes of your youth, don't pass up those, uh, you know, opportunities because, you know, sooner or later they're not going to be there. I remember when, uh, you know, we were having the Q and A that I, I had a chance to ask uh, Jerry a question, and, and of course, you know, since I've always been a big Buddy Landell fan, I asked him about Buddy, and, you know, he told a funny story about, you know, Buddy and stuff like that, and, yeah, of course, everyone's got a million stories about Buddy Landell, but no, that was a, it was a great Q&A session, uh, a great, you know, sitting under the learning tree, if you will, and that's definitely uh, what we had a chance to do, and uh, again, when we post a link to this match, I really hope you'll avail yourself. Like, like Barry said, it's like maybe a 12 minute watch. This is not, uh, you know, in depth 65 minute viewing, uh, that I like to plan for Barry occasionally, but not this week. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, but I think you'll, uh, really enjoy yourself and have fun doing it. So, uh, that being said, hey, uh, Barry, why don't we, uh, switch over and, uh, listen to our little chat we had with Gary Michael Capetta. You know, Barry, uh, never a bad time to mention that coming up here relatively soon, it's the next CWF Legends Fan Fest in beautiful Metropolitan Lutz, Florida. And one of the people that's going to be uh, at the Fan Fest is the man known as the world's most dangerous announcer, Barry Rose. Why don't you introduce the listeners to our guest? Absolutely. We have got, uh, we've got a legend. That's part of it. We say CWF legends. And I don't think Gary spent a lot of time working the state of Florida, though I did meet him once at an event in Miami Beach that he happened to be at. I guess I'm going back to the 1970s, but I'm Gary sure he remembers it. I'm oh, absolutely. Who, who wouldn't remember some snot nosed little 12 year old coming up asking for an autograph? So I'm sure it's a vivid memory of the time that we met at the convention center. But but we do have, as you said, Jeff, the world's most dangerous announcer, Gary Michael Capetta. Gary will be hosting what's really become one of our most popular segments 
of the day, Jeff. It's the after party. Uh, it's where Gary essentially has free reign. He can do and say whatever he wants. We'll do a little Q&A, but it's a great chance to be able to spend an hour with somebody that has written books on professional wrestling and was involved with the industry for 50 years. Jeff, we have Gary Michael Capetta with us today. Gary, thank you for joining us, my man. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this. So, Gary, always a good place to start is right at the beginning. So a young Gary Michael Capetta, before you get into the business, when did you become a wrestling fan? Were you a wrestling fan? How did the whole relationship with you and professional wrestling start? I knew nothing about pro wrestling. And um, one night, I w- it was late night. And I was a kid and I was uh, laying in front of the TV and I was flipping through channels and I saw these uh, sweaty, somewhat clad people <laughs> rolling around in a, on a white mat in a darkened something or other. I didn't know what it was. It was like a, a gladiator kind of spectacle to me because there were people, you know, as a, as a 10 year old, there were people screaming at them and I had no idea what I was watching. And um, um, it, it just it made me curious. And uh, I thought that it was something I shouldn't be watching for my age. <laughs> it's, it was just how that hit me. And then I, I just continued to tune in. And because they, you know, I was just curious about it. And, and we're talking about uh, the Graham brothers and Hans and Max Mortier and uh, manager Bobby Davis, um, you know, just. Uh, classic, classic uh, wrestling performers. This was up in, um, I was, I lived in New Jersey, so it was the WWWF and the tapings were out of Washington, D.C. with Ray Morgan as the host. And so I, you know, I, I just kept on, I kept on watching and, and, and caught on to what was going on and I just continued to be a fan. And then when I got old enough, um, I would ask my parents if, uh, you know, I could go to the shows and um, they would uh, drop me off and I would, you know, with a cousin of mine. And um, one night in Wildwood, um, this was, um, you know, when I was in college, I, they didn't have an announcer and uh, I volunteered. And I didn't have a, any design to become part of the show. But I don't know, the, just, the, the moment just struck me. And that was uh, the next week was the first time that I stepped into the ring. And that's that's how it started. Well, this it, this is Wildwood, New Jersey. Was this a WWWF show as well? It was. It was. And the headliner was my childhood hero, Bruno San Martino. Wow. So, so uh, how did that work was, out, uh, though? How did you how do you I mean, how does essentially a, a kid off the street become the ring announcer and who, who did you have to go through? Like who was your contact there? Well, that the night that they didn't have an announcer was uh, the end of June. And at that time, um, Wildwood had weekly wrestling shows. It was, uh, it's a, um, a shore community, a lot of uh, vacationers come in every week. And um, so this was before the 4th of July um, kickoff show and they didn't have an announcer and the guy who was known as <clears throat> the president of the WWWF, Willie Gilsenberg would saunter up to the ring and, 
and introduce the wrestlers. Then he'd go back to the, the box office. And then at the end of the match, he would saunter up. He would announce the winner. And it was just like really, really, really slow, which is why, I mean, as a wrestling fan, I was just impatient with this, which is why I uh, volunteered. So at the end of the night, uh, and I, so I went up to Willie and uh, he was very, you know, they, there were no barriers around the ring. You could go up and talk to whoever you wanted to talk to. And I volunteered that night. And for the rest of the night, he said, okay, but you can't get in the ring because look at you, you know, you're wearing a, a t-shirt and jeans. So at the end of the night, he came up to me and said, you have any um, experience doing this? That wasn't bad. And uh, I lied to him and I said, of course I do. And he said, well, wear a tie and next week for the July weekend, we'll put you in the ring. And that's, it was that simple. And I, so every week, weekly, I announced uh, that first summer of 1974. So if you don't mind, uh, me asking when exactly I know at some point you got on the uh, the WWWF television show as the uh, announcer. Uh, when exactly did that? You know, I know I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit here, but how long before uh, when you first started in Wildwood to where you started appearing on the television program? Well, what I didn't know those nights in 1974 in Wildwood was that the real boss uh, was Gorilla Monsoon. Um, I only knew him as a wrestler, so and I wasn't allowed in the locker room at all. So I would come and I would uh, I would change if I wasn't already wearing a suit and tie. I would change on the other side of the building, and they would just give me the lineup. So I never went inside the the locker room. And as it turns out, Gorilla Monsoon was a part owner of the of Capital Wrestling, which was WWWF, the business side of it. And um, and he was the local promoter. So at the end of the summer, he asked me if I wanted to continue with him. By that time, I knew that he was a, a promoter also. So I said, sure. So for the next two years, I announced at every local show that he promoted, whether it be high school, college, rodeo arena, um, army base, armory, uh, any 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 place where you can gather people, and uh, what I also didn't know was that he was the head guy of WWWF Television. So two years later, 1976, he put me on TV, and he knew with the current with, uh, Buddy Wagner was the ring announcer prior to me, and um, Monsoon knew that. If his ring announcer was the TV announcer, that that would just add to his shows. I think that was part of what he how he looked at it. Um, and he could count on me, too. So um, and, I, and I guess he liked what I was doing. We never you know, we never discussed and I've never discussed with uh, except for one minor case. I've never discussed anything with any one who ever hired me about what I do and how I do it. I just, I go out and it's changed over the decades, you know, it's evolved, uh, you know, as to my announcing style, but you know, I grew up too. I was just a kid when, when this, I was only 21 when I started. So um, that's how I got on TV with, through uh, Gorilla Monsoon. So Gary, what, what was Gorilla Monsoon like? And it looks like in Sweet Loose sent us some great intel that you were working with Gorilla Monsoon, I guess, for a few Atlantic City shows that might have been 
televised on a local cable channel. What was it like working with Gorilla back then? He was the best. I mean, he if it wasn't for Gorilla Monsoon, I would have never had a a career um now that we look back that's you know, that has spanned decades. I would have never had a career in pro wrestling. He um he took me and um he mentored me and carried me as long as he could, which would which was until Vinny had, you know, bought the uh promotion from his father. And at which point Monsoon lost his power. So yeah, I mean, and he, plus he was great. I mean, I would go over to his house and he had a pool table in his basement and we would, you know, we would chat and, um, he took care of me, you know, and I, I, I didn't know anyone. I had no contacts. I had no inside anything. And I never have over all of the promotions that I announced for. Um, I never knew anyone on the inside. So through monsoon, I got to be good at what I did. And then I like to think that what I did and how I did it carried me through, uh, you know, to the NWA and AWA and WCW and Ring of Honor and, the you know, wherever I, I announced. So, yeah, he, he was everything. Not only is he responsible for my career, but he's just a, a wonderful, wonderful person. Well, let me ask you, you know, you, the timeline that you're talking about uh, when you first started appearing on the WWF television show, uh, they also had Joe McHugh there, correct? Yes. So did you guys sort of alternate going out and introducing matches or uh, or what was the deal there? No, we did two. There were two different television shows. Gotcha. Okay. So for years, um, Buddy Wagner was the announcer for championship wrestling which was taped every uh, third Tuesday at the Philadelphia Arena. The following night, every third Wednesday, in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, Joe McHugh did the All-Star show. When they brought me aboard, I now at Championship Wrestling out of Philly was the A show. Hamburg was the B show, All-Star Wrestling. So um, I replaced Buddy Wagner, and for the first year and a half or so, I worked the A show, the championship wrestling, but Joe McHugh, he lived in Allentown. And at one point they changed the A show from taping in Philly to Allentown. So when they went to Allentown, just to make it easier for Joe, because I, I don't believe he drove and his, his daughter would drive him to the show. Um, he started doing the championship show. And then I moved over to Hamburg and did the all-star show. So we did two separate television shows if in in a market if there were only if there was only one wwwf show they saw championship wrestling but if they had a second slot in the market then they saw championship and then also all-star so it was uh yeah and and you know technically uh, by looking at it you wouldn't know the difference other than the personnel the announced personnel was different so did you have any interaction with Joe at all? Um, we only met one very brief time when they thought that he wasn't um, able to be at the show. They brought me into Allentown on a Tuesday to take his place for the night, and he wound up showing up. So I, we just said hello very briefly, but that was that was all. I mean, there was no reason for us to be in the same no, place no, at the you same know, that's, time. 
Yeah, that's uh, very understandable. I just didn't know if uh, by happenstance you uh, you had had any kind of interaction with them. So when when you're on the program, uh, you know, you you've got this gig now. Is there anyone that you're looking at? Uh, you know, you see this particular uh, guy on television doing the announcing. You mentioned uh, Buddy. Uh, I'm sorry, his last name was Buddy Marino. Did you say Buddy Wagner? Wagner. I'm sorry. Were you watching him going, okay, I can, I can take this from him, uh, and this guy that I see on television doing something else, I can take a little bit of that from him and sort of combine what I want to offer, or is it strictly, I'm going to do it my way? Like, what were you thinking there? Yeah, there, there were, there were three and, and for different reasons. Um, Buddy Wagner was one and cause I thought he was like pretty snappy. Jimmy Lennon senior, because I thought he was very professional the way he conducted himself. And then from the WWF TV before I started, when it came from Washington, D.C., there was a fella who, his name was um, Bob Freed, friendly Bob Freed. Now, Bob Freed, technically, if you were to examine his work, you would um, you just shake your head and say, how did this guy ever get this position? <laughs> he, he was pretty sloppy. But, you know, what I liked about him was believability. I, I felt like I knew him, maybe for the wrong reasons, but I felt like I knew him, familiarity. And of the three announcers and of the three reasons that I, that I patterned myself after these guys, the believability that I got from him carried me farther than either of the other two qualities. Um, because people always felt that they knew me, that they connected with me. And that was part of the appeal. And that was also uh, when news had to be announced to the audience that the audience wasn't going to like, like the main event wasn't going to be there that night. I That was one of my strengths, where I could go out and spin a tale as to like what happened, why that person couldn't be there. But by the end of the announcement, telling them instead you're going to see and whatever the replacement was. And by the end of the announcement, getting the people to believe that what they were going to see was going to be greater than what they anticipated, what they bought their ticket for. They believed me. Everything I told them, they they just had a believability. And um, that was the strength of this very sloppy announcer who I had um, not really studied, but who I had watched over the years. Yeah. So those were the three announcers that uh, I patterned myself after. Gotcha. And if you're just joining us right now, we always say, well, where have you been the last few minutes? But we are very fortunate to have legendary ring announcer, the most dangerous ring announcer. Jeff, I believe the entire world Gary Michael Capetta, who will be a guest at the next upcoming CWF Legends Fan Fest taking place on June the 3rd of this year in the beautiful Tampa suburb of Lutz. We have Ken Patera there, Haku, Jerry Briscoe, Steve Kern, Leilani Kai, Judy Martin, a reunion of the Glamour Girls, Jeff, as well as Gary Michael Capetta. And Gary, I referenced this at the beginning of the conversation, but you actually were at the matches in Miami at least once, possibly more, 
But uh, I know that I saw you there at least once, and I believe the ring announcer, who was Frank Freeman, the Miami Beach ring announcer for for decades, actually pointed you out and uh, basically said that Gary Michael Capetta, the you know the ring announcer of uh, the WWWF, is here. Uh, you actually signed an autograph for me that night. Do you remember Frank Freeman at all, the ring announcer of Miami Beach? No, but but I but I remember being there. I was on vacation, and I had mentioned to an uncle of mine that you know I, I wanted to go to the wrestling because I wanted to see wrestlers that I you know I wasn't aware of or that I that I had never seen before, but that I only had read about. Um, remembering you know this was the territory days, so we went, and um, my uncle who was. He could be a little devilish. <laughs> he decided to become my um, <clears throat> to become my PR person for the night, and he went up and he told the ring announcer that what you just said, you know, that I was there, and 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 the fella introduced me, and that's pretty much all that I remember about the night. I do remember being there, but it was only uh, only the one time. Oh wow! Okay. So, Gary, I reached out to uh, a friend of the show, uh, the legendary uh, former ECW ring announcer, Ron Lemieux. Ron Ron used to do uh, some of the house shows in Florida when uh, ECW was there. And so I, I told him about your appearance coming up. And, uh, you know, you mentioned how when you first started out, you weren't allowed into the locker room. Uh, at what point did you uh, become, I guess, established enough to where you were allowed access to the locker room? Do you remember? Well, it had to have been within the first two years because I was in the locker room when I started TV. That was a, a, I was teaching school. I was teaching high school. So I would get to the arena at the last moment. And there were 18 matches plus dark matches that I had to gather information about. And there was just one huge room where everybody dressed so it had to be within the first two years it was something and and it makes sense because you gain someone's trust gradually so it was a gradual process where finally one night when he was comfortable monsoon called me in i don't remember that night and i don't know that it you know that i kept going into the locker room after that first night um, no, 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 I understand. Yeah, no, what what uh, what Ron wanted me to to ask you uh, was how except once you were finally allowed, how accepted were you uh, in the locker room, or was that a continuing process? You know, I I, I didn't try to be friends with anyone. Mm-hmm. I didn't try to be one of the boys. Uh, the purpose of the locker room was for me to go in, get dressed talk to Monsoon about what he wanted that night, maybe talk about my schedule for the upcoming weeks. And while everything was, you know, really pleasant, then I would say hi to everybody. It, it wasn't a matter of being accepted because I wasn't being, I wasn't asking to be accepted. I was just there to, you know, to, to do my announcing job. So I think a lot of back then, things are different today, but back then, a lot of uh, the outsiders would try to impose themselves on wrestlers and try to become one of the boys, and all of a sudden their vocabulary will change. <laughs> I, I didn't do any of that. It was 
it, I, I just came in to do what my job was. So I was, as far as I know, I was tolerated. I don't know whether I was accepted. To tell you the truth, like years later, when I talked to someone like Ken Patera, who was a headliner then, you know, during those years, I come to find out that they had a different view of me than I thought that they did. Like they saw me as being, at the very least, professional. I, you know, I would, ha- I would have no way of knowing that. I would just go in and do my job. But I never tried to be like socially tied to it. Remember, like I said, I was teaching school. So I wasn't going out with anyone afterwards. I was going straight home. This wasn't your only job. Right, exactly. So um, there was no time to socialize with anyone. It was just within the confines of the locker room. And I, you know, I, I, and yet um, I remember Tony Gurria um, helping me out with a real estate deal that I, when I was buying my first house, I mean, there were, I remember talking to Mr. Fuji about um, piano lessons for his daughter. Like there were times when, you know, the personal bled into it, but it was another one of those. Yeah. It was just a casual thing. It was a gradual thing. It was a circumstantial thing and nothing, there was no design to any of it. Speaking of Tony Gurria, I believe he doesn't live too far from you these days as well. Correct. He, I know he's in Florida. I'm not sure exactly where. Yeah, I think he's, uh, without revealing exact locations, I, I think he's uh, just a short drive from you. I don't think he's too far away at, at all. Tony's been down there for the last few years. So here's a question. with, And, and you kind of had mentioned it and alluded to it, but with having a full-time job being, and it was a Spanish teacher, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so a full-time job being a teacher, how difficult was it trying to juggle, you know, your full-time day job essentially as teaching and then it, moving into the wrestling? Was that difficult for you? No. I think it all depends upon um, what your needs are and what you enjoy. And, how. I mean, there were times when I had four jobs. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and... um in the summer, I would manage a uh, an amusement park, and I also had my own cleaning business for some of those years. I also had purchased a house that, so I was like a landlord for rentals uh, during the, the uh, summer season. So, yeah, you just do. You just do. It just depends on how much you want to uh, to do things. Yeah, I, I mean, it's amazing. I. I look back and I wonder how I did everything that I did, but I, it just all fit. I just made it fit. So I, I mentioned uh, my last question was uh, about uh, the going into the locker rooms and stuff like that. Uh, and I mentioned uh, our friend, Ron Lemieux Barry. And one of the things that Ron also wanted to know that he had a little trouble with when he first started. And again, maybe it was a different time because you were starting about 20 years before Ron was, did you know about the unwritten rule of shaking everyone's hand once you finally got into the locker room or was that really not something that you engaged in because you were just there to get the information or what? Yeah, that wasn't a thing when I, when I began um, announcing it wasn't, I, you know, I, I, I know what you're talking about. I'm not really even sure that I understand it or what the point is, but um, I, I, you know, I, I think it might be one of those things where, 
um, later day uh, wrestlers. I don't know. It just made them feel more like part of the group by sometimes con- concocting things or, or maybe that was a thing in a certain territory and someone told a story about it. And then it, I don't know. No, it, that's very, that's just, very fair. That's very fair. Yeah. I, uh, it's silly. It's silly. You just be yourself, be genuine and beginning and end of it. So when, uh, you know, you were with the WWF for, uh, you know, geez, over 10 years, uh, as uh, Vince Jr. decided to start taking the company more national, what was it that led to your uh, your exit from the WWF? I didn't see that I had a future there. Um, as I had said before, Monsoon was forced to sell his shares. I don't know how Finney was thinking. Um, throughout the years, I knew that I wasn't, I wasn't one of his favorite people. He didn't, he, he, if you watch the eight years of WWWF TV that I was on, you will notice, even though there were, there were times when I was the center of something that was going on because some, because a wrestler initiated uh, hanky panky with me. Then he never, ever, ever said my name ever. He would, uh, he was just very dismissive of me from the beginning. And I don't know why. I'm not sure why. Um, maybe because I was a member of Team Monsoon, which I never knew there was a team. I'm not sure. But, uh, and to tell you the truth, back then, now we're talking, we're talking at least a year before WrestleMania one. Um, I was, you know, teaching school and I had, um, 11 years of um, experience built up. And if I had been asked to leave teaching and to start working with the WWF full time, I would have turned them down because I had something secure and crazy wrestling. You know, I wasn't going <laughs> to, you know, at the time you couldn't foresee the empire that Vinny had built, wound up building. So um, also at the same time, um, they stopped doing the TV in uh, Pennsylvania and Vern Gagne came along and he asked me if I would uh, announce his ESPN show, which was the first nationally televised wrestling program on any kind of legit sports outlet. And um, given the choice, I went and announced on ESPN. So I just, I I didn't quit. I wasn't fired from the WWF. I just pretty much just, they stopped associating with me. I stopped going and we just little by little parted ways. Gotcha. Well, so with that too, what was it like dealing with Vern? You you had gone from dealing with Gorilla Monsoon, who kind of, in some ways, was like a supplemental father figure. He was a mentor figure for you. What was it like dealing with Vern Gagne at that stage? Oh, I I wouldn't say Monsoon was a father figure, but he was a mentor. Vern, I I, I never had a problem with. For ninety nine percent of my career, I've never had any problem with. Um, any of the people that have hired me to to work. So um, Vern was, uh, he came across as a, 
I would say I would compare him to a politician. When he walked into the room, he was always dressed, you know, to the nines and he always sparkled, always had this big smile. I, I, I always saw him like as, as a um, politician kind of personality, always treated me well, always came through with what he promised um, with time. As it would turn out, he would bring me in to do two of his pay-per-views, Super Clash 3 and um, Wrestle Rock in Minneapolis. So that, you know, was, I, had a, I had a good relationship with, with Fern. So, well, listen, uh, Gary, we really appreciate the time that you've given us today. And we want to once again uh, mention Barry, I know, is uh, very fond of plugging the uh, fan fest in <laughs> Florida. So, uh, Barry, once again, can you remind her? And by the way, Gary, uh, will you be having any copies of your book available to the uh, listeners of this fine podcast? Sure. I mean, if you want, if you guys want me to bring books, I'll be happy to bring books. I'm sure um, the listeners would love to get a uh, book that perhaps if they're lucky, if they're nice and asked politely, would be autographed by uh, the world's most uh, dangerous ring announcer, Gary Michael Capetta. You know, I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, to attending. Last time I was in um, Tampa, I brought my stage show and uh, we had a nice uh, crowd there at the showman's club um which was which was classic classic place is that is that the one in gibsonton florida um there are two i don't think this one was in gibsonton it was it was i think it was underneath maybe a highway i want to say i i don't know i'm not exactly sure i don't think it still is up and running i'm not sure about that either but i had a wonderful time with um with the fans in in tampa when i was there um the last time and i look forward to to coming out this time we'll do um for the time that uh, you guys have been generous in in allotting me outside of the convention part of things um i'll be open to answering any questions anyone has Anyone that knows me knows that um, uh, be careful of what you ask because you're going to get a straight, honest answer. And um, and um, there are no limits. There's I mean, any questions you have all the way back to the WWF or uh, AWA, NWA, Ring of Honor, uh, my little uh, stint with um, AEW not too long ago, any of any of my travels through um, the United States or Europe or anything you guys want to talk about, any wrestling personality. Um, there have been tens of thousands that I've introduced. <laughs> so uh, I'll give you the straight skinny from the best of my memory. And if I don't know, I'll tell you that I don't know, because I think that's important too. I won't carry stories that people have told me. I'll give you the exact truth from what I personally witnessed. And I don't think you can ask for anything better than that. Barry, well, I think I think Gary just did a better job of selling the fan fest than Penzer's ever done. 
I got to tell you right now, and I'm watching as this is as this is recording, Jeff. I'm watching ticket sales go up just based <laughs> off of that. So yes, that is fantastic too. And uh, Gary, we do look forward. Tickets are available. It is June the third. Doors open up at eleven o'clock for VIP ticket holders. Gary will be there taking uh, photographs. Signing his name, signing autographs, as well as doing a Q&A session at our after party uh, that evening. We encourage everybody to visit eventbrite.com to look for CWF Legends Fan Fest. Gary, this has been a treat. Thank you so much. Jeff, I know you're excited now to meet Gary on June the 3rd. Absolutely. Gary, we certainly appreciate, you know, you said, uh, you appreciate us for, uh, offering you. We appreciate you for, for coming on and, uh, uh, giving us some stories about your days, uh, back in the WWWF, uh, and some, uh, some Vern Gagne stories. And I know that the listeners, uh, when they show up in beautiful downtown Lutz will look forward to hearing even more tales of the world's, <laughs> uh, you know, most dangerous ring announcer. Wrestling fans, get those answers while GMC is still alive. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How's that? Very good talk with uh, Gary Capetta. Looking forward to seeing him at the CWF Legends Fan Fest in Lutz, Florida. Oh, Barry, when is that again? Oh, yeah, that's right. Jeff, I had a question to ask you that I wanted to ask you uh, when you were talking about the segment that we did with Jerry Jarrett, which was our cup of coffee segment. By the way, that is June the 3rd of this year. How excited are you, Jeff, to be moderating the Ken Patera segment? Oh, yes. That's going <laughs> to be loads of fun. I'll have to be on my toes for that one. Oh, man. Could that go off the rail <laughs> 50 different ways or what? I want to know. I want someone to uh, get a little score pad there. And the odds, uh, the I want to know the over and under, the betting line on how many times he says the word either motherfucker or cocksucker, <laughs> because uh, he, he he has been known to, uh, as Kramer once famously said, to let the expletives fly. So it'll, it'll be a good time for sure. It'll definitely be a good time. And I, I'm excited that he's going to be there. And, uh, yeah, it, this is going to be a good time. But it is June the 3rd. It is headlined by Ken Patera, also on tap that day, Haku. Whether you know him as Haku, Meng, Prince Tonga, King Tonga, King Kong Tonga, or any other alias, he will be there. Jerry Briscoe, Steve Kern, a reunion of the Glamour Girls featuring two-time Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry guest Judy Martin and the great Leilani Kai, Gary Michael Capetta, as we just mentioned. And we're in the process, too, of even adding more talent. So tickets are available. You can go to eventbrite.com, type in CWF Legends Fan Fest. I'll be there. Jeff will be there. More importantly, Cash Money Dave Penzer will be there to sign autographs and take photos as well. Throwing the cash around like it's Monopoly money because he don't care. Barry, why don't we talk a little Florida man or not now? Barry, never a bad time to invest in a little Florida man or not uh, type of story. Are you ready, my friend? Wait, and what do I usually say when you ask that question? Uh, you usually say, uh, Jeff, you are far more intelligent than I am. Please. <laughs> Your voice is this. so much sexier. <laughs> That's what I say, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I happened to get a message from our, our friend uh-huh. in Canada who uh-huh. said, uh, oh. yes, uh, my lady friend, I don't know if that's what he called her, but, uh, now calls you Mr. Sexy Voice. <laughs> that's me. Wow. Mr. Sexy Voice. Uh, hold on <clears throat> just for a moment. Uh, let me, uh, reach out to her, Barry. Hey there, how you doing? It's good to know you're listening. 
appreciate it. Have a good one. Okay, now, Barry, back to uh, Lord Man. The headline reads, Barry, deputies find $22 million in liquid meth hidden in gas cans during a traffic stop. <laughs> Uh-uh. Barry, the uh, story goes, uh, Channel 2's Tom Regan went to the area where a deputy had pulled over a pickup truck, uh, without the deputy knowing he was crossing path, uh, paths with drug smugglers. Police spokesman, uh, Derek Booth said the deputy pulled the truck over for a tag light violation. That's always nice when you got 22 million worth of meth and you don't bother to keep your fucking tag light, you know, fixed. Wow. Hell yeah. yeah. Uh, the situation uh, became the biggest drug bust ever in the history of this particular county. Uh, I gotta go to the read more problem here, Barry. Okay, the deputy noticed gas cans in the truck bed in the cab, but something seemed strange. Didn't smell any diesel or gas, the deputy said. He also noticed a dry white crystal looking substance on some of the cans. Uh, Barry, are you familiar with the dry white crystal substance? Oh yeah, yeah. I got a lot of that. Absolutely. Uh, the deputy tested, or I'm sorry, decided the liquid in the containers needed to be tested for drugs. Turned out to be 600 pounds of liquid meth. Barry Rose, Florida man or not? Oh, man. And the only hint there is Tom Regan, whoever the fuck that is. I, I'm going in my head. The Tom great, Regan? The great Tom Regan. Does yeah. it sound familiar? I This is, uh, I, I, don't, I mean, first off, $22 million in liquid meth. What's a what's a tag light? Is that a light that goes over uh, your license plate? Tens of millions of dollars. The amount that you mentioned, uh, let's see, was uh, 600 pounds of liquid Wow. With a, uh, apparently a street value man of like, uh, 22 million. Let's just clarify, or tens of millions, excuse me. And is a tag light a light that goes over your license plate? Uh, or it could be like for your, uh, you know, your, your back tail lights or your reverse okay. light, whatever. No, I'm just wondering, I'm wondering if he's a trucker and maybe that's one of the requirements that you have to have a light on your license plate. I don't know. Well, it's apparently when you're trucking the liquid meth, it's a requirement, Barry. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. And imagine that. Imagine you're carrying something that's worth $22 million on a street value and, and you're, you, you know, you're either you're running a red light or one of your fucking lights is out. Boy, you're an idiot, right? $22 million. I'm going to say this is a flip of a coin. I'm going to say it's not Florida. In fact, this took place in Hall County, Georgia. Ask me why that is particularly interesting. Why is that particularly interesting? Well, Hall County is where Gainesville, Georgia is located. So oh. yep, it's the old hometown. Uh-uh, next, Barry Rose. Viral so is, is this a big story locally? Uh, well, I, I would bow to your better knowledge on that. Uh, I was given the story by my wife, quite frankly. Oh, okay. <laughs> Viral video shows man attack pretzel store employee after the store runs out of cinnamon nuggets. Wow. You hate when that happens. Uh, news reports uh, spoke to a pretzel shop employee after he was seen trading blows. I hate when that happens, Barry. Yeah. With a customer in a viral video. This happened in an Auntie Anne's. Right? You like the Auntie Anne's, do you, Barry? You know, I like Aunt Way overpriced, but I do like it, yeah. Yeah, the, the nice buttery pretzel. That's They're very, buttery, yes. Very, very tasty. So, uh, anyway, the uh, story continues. Uh, uh, let's see. It's not what you would expect to see at a food court in a mall. It was a typical day at work. I had a customer come up to the counter. He asked me for a small cinnamon nugget. Uh, Elijah Johnson told Action News. Johnson said at the time the restaurant did not have the small nuggets to sell. By God, they were out of the cinnamon nuggets. All right. That happens. Sure. I gave him the whole spiel like why we don't have smalls. I gave him the price difference. 
Johnson said things escalated when the customer threw a drink on him. Yeah, that's not going to end well. He yeah. came around the corner. He hit me on the side of my face really hard, Johnson said. Uh, Tanya, Tanya Hopkins Wah. recorded the viral video. She was with her daughter when she heard the commotion. My heart went out to him, and like I said in the moment, it was just something to record. You see things like that all the time. In the video, you can see the customer pulling Johnson's hair as Johnson hit the customer with a set of tongs. Ray Rose, Florida man. I'm going to say this is not Florida. Cobb County, Georgia, Barry. Woo, it's an all-Georgia episode so well, far. So far, at least. I'm not going to say right. whether or not the remainder of our stories are that. Could way. change. Could yeah, change. Then, yeah, we like to uh, you know throw things up. Uh, you sure. Know, uh, so anyway, Barry, we will go to our uh, next story. Our next story is it's pulling up here. All right. Eagles fan arrested. <laughs> Guilty. Boy, I saw this one, and I was like, Oh, boy, we're going to have to play this one for Barry and Jamie and, and Cholminski. Uh, Eagles fan arrested after alleged firehouse break-in. Authorities say a fan ransacked firefighter bunks, stole money, and threw a meat cleaver when confronted. Sounds like an Eagles fan. Uh, anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, the Eagles fan got his oh, – I like this. Uh, creative writing here, Barry. Uh, authorities say that the Eagles fan, quote, got his wings clipped after vandalizing a fire station and throwing a meat cleaver at a firefighter. A 25-year-old Edward D'Alessandro broke into the uh, fire station around 10 p.m. Sunday. Uh, D'Alessandro ransacked the bunk rooms and urinated on, urinated on the carpet. He can't see that <laughs> at stadium. What's up with him? Right. He stole 126 bucks, a uniform hat, and some knives. Apparently, he was preparing steak later that day, Barry. Uh, he was confronted by firefighters, and that's when police say D'Alessandro threw the meat cleaver at one of them. The firefighters were able to subdue him until the police arrived. Barry Rose, is this Florida man or not? Oh, man. I'm going to say this is not Florida man, so it's an all non-Florida man segment. Martin County, Florida. Oh! So I am sorry. That is your first misstep of the day. Yeah, throwing the meat cleaver at the uh, fireman is not going to uh, do you any favors. I can uh, pretty much guarantee you that. So the next story, Barry, man planning vacation to Sydney, Australia, accidentally books flight to Sydney, Montana. Hey, when that happens, Kingsley Burnett, uh, like most travelers, was looking forward to his planned trip to Sydney, Australia. However, when his trip was delayed in late January, he accidentally booked a flight to Sydney, Montana instead. Burnett shared photo of his unplanned extremely unexpected journey to the treasure state. Uh, Burnett uh, told news reports that after departing New York's LaGuardia airport, he landed in Billings, Montana. Burnett <laughs> didn't think much about it because the airport was a common location for travelers to connect right, sure. to Sydney, Montana, just a few hundred miles east of Billings. The only problem is he was off by one letter. I had, I had to find out for myself that Billings, Montana would only take me to Sydney, Montana, which is where there are no kangaroos waiting to welcome me. Ray Rose, Florida man or not? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love this story. I'm going to say this is Florida man. Uh, actually, it's New York man. <laughs> is it real? <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I think I actually blurted it. Oh, well, let's see. Did I? Uh, well, I said he left LaGuardia Airport. Barry, you missed that one. Oh, so, yes. Not a Florida. Hey, your old boy, uh, Chris Spiker, sent me that one. So uh, shout out to Mr. Spiker. Appreciate that, Chris. 
Barry, always a good time. Florida man or not, we always have fun with that segment. Now I know one of the favorite things that you like to talk about is a little food talk. Oh. So, Barry, I'm going to call you out on something. I'm going to ask you to explain yourself by God. By God, I want an explanation. Uh Uh-oh. So, Barry, recently uh, we did a uh, food talk discussion, I believe it was last episode, about buffets. Yes. And I believe that, you know, one of the things that was quoted was, uh, you know, if you go to a buffet, there's no way they can be 100 percent clean because you don't know the people working there, if they're washing their hands regularly or when they're supposed to, whatever. So and you said, oh, absolutely right. I agree. But Uh I know recently in our group, someone had asked about your thoughts on Fogo de Chao. And you said, oh, my God, it's awesome. Very Rose. Don't they have a buffet there? So can they truly be? 100% 100% clean in Fogo de Chao? No, they cannot be. So let me let me put that caveat. There are two buffets that I like that I'm aware of. One is the Fogo de Chao buffet, which really people call it a buffet. They call it a salad bar. I, Fogo's got a name for it, too. Garden experience or something. But I'm a big fruit guy. I like fruit. They have got maybe the best selection of sliced fruit, blood oranges, fresh berries. It's phenomenal. They've got all these, like, uh, Italian meats, uh, like an antipasto almost. You like a good meat, do you? Oh, I love – well, that's why you go to Fogo de Chao, right? Okay. You want to get your beef on. Yeah, you get your um, carnivore on there for sure. Get your carnivore on, absolutely. And then there's another one, Disney World at the Animal Kingdom Lodge has – it's a place called Boma. And they, they feature American and African specialties. It's phenomenal. It's like 50 bucks a person like Fogo is. With that, neither one are going to be sanitary. There is no way if people are coming up, taking food, that it, you've got people coming up that are going to be breathing on your food. I may love it. I may think it's the greatest buffet of all time. There's not one sanitary buffet on the face of this earth. I'm glad you clarified. So speaking of food in a way, oh, Barry, you and I recently talking off air because mm. we occasionally do talk. We do. Uh, and sometimes you return my phone calls oh, as you promised. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you've got a lady friend now. I'm not That's as important. True. I'm just going to yeah. throw that out there. You're still important to me. But well, yeah, sure. thanks. But I recently had a chance, Barry Rose, to watch the menu. With the great Ralph, uh, Rafe Fines. I almost said Ralph. Barry Rose, how awesome is this fucking movie? Well, it is spelled Ralph, so you got to get it. <laughs> but it's pronounced Rafe. Yes, I have no idea why. I, have, I don't know. I started watching this movie, and I didn't know anything about it. I had no idea what was going to take place. I had no idea what was any what was this movie was about. And about, I guess about 30 minutes into it, I was like, holy shit. This is something else. This is one of the most unique, original, and unusual films I think I've seen in the last 10 to 15 years. And I could sit here and try to describe the plot to you. It will make zero sense to you. But if you love food, if you love a good thriller, if you like a horror movie even, this is the movie for you. So... I have to be honest with you. I, I posted, uh, you know, on my Facebook page that I'd seen this movie and I'd say probably two thirds of the people that commented said, Oh my God, I love this movie. It was so incredible. And then there was about a third of the people saying, I didn't like this movie. Uh, really? what the, what the fuck is going on? So I will say 
There may be a wide-ranging difference of opinion on this film if you get a chance to watch it. Not everyone's going to say, this is awesome. Some won't get it, and some will say, what the fuck was I watching? So I, I don't know if that there's going to be any middle ground where it's like, eh, I kind of liked it, I kind of didn't like it. It's either you really are going to like it or you really are going to hate it. It's about a chef. Let me throw it out there. It's sort of a, uh, I'm not comparing the character in the movie, but I'm talking just strictly the stature of him as a chef. Sort of like if you had Gordon Ramsay, okay? Yes. A very well-known name, okay? Who uh, owns an island and who invites a limited select amount of people to uh, his dinners, okay? And he is very tightly wound, uh, as a lot of great chefs are. Uh, very particular about the way that his food is prepared, the way that his food is presented. And so he has these 12 guests that come, and it's, I think, six different couples. And there are people that he's had some past interaction with them. I, I know one is uh, is a movie star who's played by John Leguizamo. Uh, there's a guy who's been talking with him on social media who's sort of a less who wants to become a food critic, but he's not. Then there's a, a woman who's a very well-known food critic who's well-known for her very uh, acidic reviews. And so he wants to present this uh, five- or six-course meal to them. He's got this group of, uh, of young chefs in training that are presenting it. And let's just say that's where the movie starts, okay? And what you think you're getting about 20 to 25 minutes into the film, as Barry said, is what you find out is not happening at all. Uh, that everyone is there for a particular reason. Everyone is going to be called to explain, let's just say, the sins of their past. Would that be a fair analysis, Barry? Oh, yes, I love it. The sins yeah. of their past. Yes. And so, uh, and they are going to be called to, uh, to answer for the sins of their past. And it sets in the wheels of motion of what's really going on. All that plus there is one person, one character who's not supposed to be there who kind of throws a monkey wrench into the chef's plans. And that's where, that's where the movie goes. That's where it takes you. It is, uh, if you're a food person, uh, some of the food that is presented is, uh, is beautifully presented and it looks excellent. And, you know, then there's, there's one particular character who's like, Oh, what is this? Uh, I, I don't want to eat this. This isn't food. This is, you know, because he's presented as, uh, my wife and I call it very foo foo. Uh, you know, type of uh, food. It doesn't look like, you know, you're having barbecue. Let's put it that way. But it's a very, very original movie. Uh, again, Ray Fiennes is, man, he's just so great uh, in this role and everything else. John Leguizamo. Uh, and then, you know, it's funny how, uh, you know, uh, Barry and I uh, are big fans of the TV show Emergency. Uh, and we watch it and we always text each other. Oh, guess who's on this episode? And we'll find some character actor that we haven't seen in 40 years that's in this particular episode. Well, in this particular movie, seemingly coming out of nowhere is Judith Light, who used to be in the old 90s sitcom Who's the Boss with Tony Danza. And like, and I was like, going, where do I know that person for? I'm looking it up. I'm like, oh, my God, that's Judith Light. And she's like 75 years old now or something like that. So there's some great veteran character actors that are in the movie, too. It's definitely worth a uh, a couple hours of your time. Uh, I, I think you if you go into it uh, not knowing what to expect other than the basic parameters that Barry and I just laid out, I think you'll really enjoy yourself, and it'll be a fun ride. All right, Barry, uh, that being said, you're about ready to call it a day, my friend. Time to wrap it up, my friend. Yeah, so a little bit of uh, food talk. We had a little movie talk, a little wrestling talk, a little interview with Gary Michael Capetta. 
a little Florida man or not, just a little bit of something for everyone. Barry Rose, as we close, I do want to give one particular shout out to our old friend Adam Dumau, uh, who announced that his son has uh, been accepted into Penn State. Uh, Barry Rose, will you join me? Well, I have a hard time with this only well, because because uh, well, well, he's going to State Penn and not Pitt. There you go. So, Adam well, I'll tell you something maybe you don't know, Barry. Uh-huh. Is apparently, of course, you know, Adam is a big Michigan fan. Yes. Uh, and he said, son, son, uh, I really want you to go to Michigan to get a, a fine education. Uh, and, and, his, and his son reportedly told Adam, uh, dad, uh, I want to go to a school that has good education and, and is a good school. <clears throat> I'm expecting a comment from Adam on that, Barry. But Barry, what are you going to say about Pitt now? I love that. <laughs> that was awesome. Adam and I were actually trading messages this morning as before this. And he's so like, I'm not the only one he's, uh, he's texting. No, no. And he's like, hey, is everything okay between us? And I'm like, I don't know. I got to be honest. I don't know because you got a kid going to Penn State. I got two at Pitt. This is a big, big, big rivalry, in-state rivalry. But I kind of feel for him in the sense also because – Adam is going to be paying out of yes, indeed, <laughs> and that is a that is a game changer right there. I am really fortunate that I was able. We have two good schools. Look, Pitt and Penn State are both good schools, and we're lucky enough to be able to pay in-state tuition. So I do feel for him. Yeah. So on that note, I will remind you that Breaking Cafe with Bowder and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Sometimes uh, I will just say to my buddy Gunny. Buddy, I miss you. You know, Barry, not, not to get sidetracked here, just very quickly. Uh, I had, had a very dear friend of mine uh, from South Florida that I worked at at the courthouse that uh, recently uh, lost her German shepherd, uh, Abby, that she had had for Aww. many years. And so she had posted a picture. She got, uh, you know, his remains back, a beautiful, ornate box. I mean, she must have spent some money on that, uh, you know, getting uh, her dog's ashes back. And and I sent her a, a picture of, a, of a, a gift that my daughter had gotten me with uh with my dog gunny where it's a picture of gunny and there's some sort of uh you know very nice passage that ends with you know uh when the time come when your time comes i'll be waiting for you at the door and so i told her i said you know that's what you have to think about that you know when the time comes for you to you know you to leave that your dog will be waiting for you at the door when you uh when you get there so on that note i didn't mean to get maudlin there but you know we do love our dogs as barry has said so uh you know, for my uh, co-host Barry Rose, for our, uh, our sweet man Luke Kippelman, and for my boy Gunny, I will just say that I am Jeff Dodger. Sometimes they call me the Booker Lou. Take it into Portland.